Turn, if you will, to Psalm 113. About 40 days ago, we, uh, it was Mother's Day, and we looked at this psalm. Is that me? I guess so. Things are still booting there. We consider the psalm. Oops. Consider the psalm and as it applies to womanhood, to motherhood. And today we want to consider this psalm and a few other things as it applies to manhood and fatherhood. Let's read the psalm. It's a short one. Praise the Lord, O you servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same. The Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. Who is likened to the Lord our God that has his seat on high? who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the needy from the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. We looked at that, this psalm last time and just saw just the, just the awesomeness of this psalm. They all are. This is, in a sense, a psalm where they're just praising God. It begins with hallelujah, ends with hallelujah. And this is the mark of all the psalms around it. Throughout is this recognition of God, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord is to be praised. His name stands for his being and his character, his person. And as we said last time, it's a generalization. The name of the Lord is a generalization to be comprehensive, not vague, not to be sort of mysterious, but to say everything that God is, let's just call it the name of the Lord. His name encompasses the entirety of his being in person. And we're to praise the Lord for his servants. He's to be recognized and praised by those who are closest to him, by those who know him the best, by those who are loved the most. We are to praise the name of the Lord. It's our privilege. It's our responsibility. The, the world's not going to praise the Lord. Uh, we can. He's to be praised at all times and in all places from the rising of the sun to its setting, whether that means time or place, God is to always be praised. And this psalm singles out several qualities that God is to be praised for. He's high above all the nations. He is incomparable in his greatness. Whether he's considered <clears throat> globally high above all the nations or his glory is above the heavens, no matter how you consider God, he's high above them all. There's nothing beyond God and certainly no one who can ever be compared unto him who's enthroned on high. Another quality that is singled out is he humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. God pays attention to his creation. He is deeply involved in his creation. He beholds his creation. He loves and esteems his creation, his own design, his own purposes, his own works. He's not distant or aloof. He's fully engaged with the world that he has made. This is our God. This is your God. And he especially considers human beings who are made in his image. He especially considers his people. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Have you been saved? Has God laid a hold of your heart and soul? Has Jesus washed you in his blood, given you his Holy Spirit, as Chris prayed earlier? Then he has raised you up from the dust. And he has lifted you up 
from the ash heap. And he clearly wants his servants to prosper. He wants to them to make them to sit with princes. And remember, this is poetic language. That has some meaning. Points to manhood. God's ordained design for masculinity. And makes the barren woman to keep house and be a joyful mother of children. Again, he points to womanhood. The ordained and designed femininity. It puts a smile on God's face. So this psalm celebrates manhood and womanhood. It celebrates those specific cisgender roles that are consistently represented throughout the Bible. Interesting, we used to be able to say gender. Now you have to say cisgender. And for those of you who don't know what cisgender is, it usually takes a while for it to grow on you. It's not a word you really like to, to have to use. But we live in a generation where people say biological sex and gender can be mixed and matched. That your gender can be chosen by you that is different from your biological gender. So it's a confused world. And cisgender means the gender you have chosen or the gender that you go by, the pronouns that you use, match your biological sex. You are cisgender. And God is decidedly cisgender. And these roles are consistently represented throughout the Bible. It's one of the things when we deal with that topic specifically, or if you talk to someone about it specifically who wants to go in and zero in on a verse and kind of pick it apart and make it say something different than what God really says, just say, look, the whole entire Bible from beginning to end is cisgender. Why would you want to change that? Now, they may have a lot of reasons for that, and they'll probably give you an earful, but the point you're witnessing is to try to get people to think that God is cisgender. And if you're not, where does that leave you? On Mother's Day, we focused on womanhood as God, in God's design for womanhood. Women are to make the family happen. Birth, provision, Watchfulness, nurturing, all those things. Like God's name, these things are generalized here. He makes the barren woman to abide in the house and be a joyful mother of children. He's just saying, in general, there are edge cases, but in general, this is the role of women. I have a gardensman or Gwen's been planting lots of flowers around our house, and so some bumblebees have shown up. And I thought maybe there's this big hive of bumblebees somewhere and there, a few of them are just coming over and sucking the nectar out of our flowers and competing with the hummingbirds. But then one day I was looking at this little house we have hanging, it's supposed to be a birdhouse, and I watched this big old bumblebee come in and crawl right into the house. I'm like, oh, that's a bumblebee nest. And as far as I can tell, there's only four or five of them, so it's a really small nest. <clears throat> But I just love to go outdoors and watch those bumblebees. They're just going from flower to flower. Every day they get up in the morning, they go from flower to flower, and they go and sleep at night. They just do what they're supposed to be doing. And I just love to watch them every day. Little bumblebees. Living and acting according to their design. And that's what God desires for us to be, living and acting according to our design. And here is the role that God has designed for women. It doesn't get old. It might be challenging at times. But God has never changed. This is what he desires. This is what he loves. Nothing is too great for God and no one is too insignificant for God. And here God bows down the heavens that he is high above so that he can make the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. God loves womanhood and motherhood. God blesses womanhood and motherhood. God views and regards and manages the world through this lens. But today we want to focus on manhood and fatherhood. And we can say the same thing about manhood and fatherhood. God loves manhood and a fatherhood. God blesses manhood and a fatherhood. If you call upon him as father, I mean, he's a father. How can he not love manhood and fatherhood? And God is decidedly masculine 
in his own self-portrayal. Anyone tries to come to you and say, no, God's neutral, it's baloney, just read the Bible. He's decidedly masculine. Someone says, well, how, you know, how, God doesn't have DNA. It's not about DNA, it's about character. God views, regards, and manages the world through this design. He loves manhood and fatherhood. So let's just pray and ask the Lord just to bless the next few minutes as we look at some of these things. Heavenly Father, we come again to your throne just very quickly, and we ask, Lord, on a Sunday morning, summer, starting to heat up. Lord, it's easy for minds to wander. It's easy to be thinking about the week we may have had in the past or the week we anticipate coming to us. Lord, just pray that right now we can all just collect our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, and expect from you that you are going to, by your holy scriptures, encourage us You are going to, Lord, just solidify in our souls in this crazy generation, in a generation that's doing everything it can to define you out of existence. The Lord, we would be established more and more in your word of truth. Lord, we trust your word and we thank you for your holy scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for something that's objective and is more sure than the heavens and the earth. And Lord, we ask by your spirit you would just bless it today. In Jesus' name, amen. I couldn't get the graphic. Didn't have time for graphics. But if I had a graphic to represent womanhood, I would have a silhouette, an icon, if it were, all blown up with a woman and children, maybe holding a baby in the arm. And of course, that would be blasphemy to to today's philosophies and Uh, particularly onerous to the feminist movement, but that is the picture that the Bible paints. And as we said last time, the world is out to diminish that view of womanhood all it can. But if I was to have a picture, an icon, just to represent manhood, it would be a combination of two things. It would be a pillar and it would be a compass. Because the biblical emphasis for manhood is that of responsible leadership. God takes people off the ash heap of sin and darkness. Raises them out of that in this euphemism, in this metaphor to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. For men to take their proper place in the world, in their family. As responsible leaders. Now, motherhood is mentioned with womanhood here in this passage, this psalm. Fatherhood is assumed. If someone says, well, fatherhood's not specifically mentioned, I'm like, just kind of read the rest of the Bible, you know. And while women make the home happen, as it says in 1 Timothy 5, rule the household. Men are to make the family and the community happen. Men are responsible for overall safety and provision and stability and prosperity. When you're there with princes in the gate, what are you dealing with? You're not, you know, shooting the pool and shooting the breeze. You're there dealing with the issues of the city. You're trying to make a path for its future to be more prosperous. You're making sure that things are going well, that it's stable. You're worried about the safety of the city because that was a day when any marauding band could come and destroy your city and everyone in it. You want to make sure that, the, that unlike California, the lights are on, that there's plenty of food. See, that's what sitting in the gates means. It doesn't mean a place of privilege. It means a place of responsibility for the umbrella and framework of the entire community. I just want to quickly just have a reminder in this part. You never know who's going to be here on a Sunday morning. Some people may have heard these things. So that this perspective on manhood, this understanding of manhood is rooted in creation. The first thing we always go back to, and I hope you always go back to, I hope you always take it there when you're dealing with people in this world, when you're, when you're dealing with unbelievers, 
get the conversation back to who they are and their own personal identity. They are in the image of God. God was there when they began to be in their mother's womb. They have a personal accountability to God. And they have an enormous opportunity to know God. Let us make man in our image and our likeness, his own image, the image of God. This is the terminology that's splattered everywhere in Genesis 1. And this defines the core of our being and our existence. We all share a common definition, dignity, and significance. And as every human being, we share a common purpose, the earth, what we're supposed to be doing in the earth. We're supposed to be building a society that is based on the righteousness of God and the recognition of God, a civilization that is God-centered because this is God's world and we are in his image. Why wouldn't we be God-centered? We're to be fully inclusive of men and women of every race that God has created, every culture that's righteous. And I always remember, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people in a day when multiculturalism is trying to <clears throat> take its full roots. Remember that all cultures are judged by God. There is a standard for culture. The expression of it can take many forms, but it must conform to righteousness, or else it's sin and a reproach to any and everybody. Maleness and femaleness is created by God. It is part of the essence of our humanity. But it's interesting that when there is this summary made in Genesis 5 of what happened in Genesis 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when he created him and he made him in the likeness of God, he created them male and female and he blessed them and named them Adam in the day when they were created. This happened in that day. This happened during the Genesis 2. After they were created, God named the human race. And unfortunately, most of your translations hide the name that God gave to the human race. They hide it behind this gender-neutral concept. They've taken a worldview to translating the Bible. And it's frustrating when I encounter these places where the, world is, where the church has capitulated to the world. It doesn't say he named them man. It says he named them Adam. And this is clear as a bell in the Hebrew. When God names the human race, he takes the man's name. And again, I know that's anathema in a world that's trying to change the name. First neutral, but sooner or later it'll be, and he called their name woman, Eve. That's where things always go. They try to dismantle God's definition of the very human race itself. Talk about rebellion against God. Talk about you're going to call evil good and good evil. Talk about in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to be like God and determine good and evil for yourself. You're going to know good and evil for yourself. The human right, race right now is probably at the, the pinnacle of its sophistication and its expression of rebellion against God. I wasn't there for the Tower of Babel, but that's where everything got confused. We live in a day when they're trying to overcome the Tower of Babel with one world orders and one world philosophies, one world view that's anything but centered in God. Gender-neutral language is awful. In so many places, it has to make compromises to remain gender-neutral. This is the book of the generations, not of Eve, but of Adam. Adam is at the center and heart of the kickoff of the human race. This is the foundation of manhood and fatherhood. In 2.7, we read that God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul, a living being, a living thing. Man doesn't have a soul. He is a soul. And that's important because there's a lot of confusion over thinking that man has body, soul, and spirit as these three separate components and part compartments. Like, man doesn't have a soul. He is a soul. He's a living thing. Adam is formed first by an act of direct, direct creation of God. And this point is huge in understanding gender roles. It's just 
gigantic. Genesis 2, 7, this small little verse. And you start thinking about all that went on. God's taking dust to the ground and bringing it together. And he directly puts into his nostrils a breath of life. And man goes from inanimate to animate being. All in one verse. An important one. And God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. And he commanded the man saying, thus and thus. God not only creates man directly, the only human being ever directly created. And he places him in a garden and says, your job is to make it beautiful, to keep it beautiful, pull the weeds, do this, dress it, learn how to trim up and make swan decorations out of bushes, all, everything you can think of in a fancy big old garden. Man had that task. And then there's a sobering directive about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man is given that commandment. Man has the primary task of order the, ordering the affairs of the garden according to God's will, God's purpose, God's commandment. That's responsibility, isn't it? And Adam, man, Adam is responsible for this. He has that primary responsibility. But God hasn't finished yet. And the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone, and I will make him a helper corresponding to him. When Eve is first introduced, her primary purpose is that of companionship. It's declared outright. He's about to make Eve, and he wants every one of us to understand why she's being made. Why can't it just be a bunch of atoms going around in the garden? Because it's not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone in the sense of simply man-to-man -man relationship. It is good for a man to have a woman. And God's foundational design for marriage is friendship and companionship and mutuality. Someone that corresponds to Adam. He's about to have all these animals created out of the ground, and they're all really cool. I've been watching uh, <clears throat> Meerkat Manor again for a while, and it's really funny. I was, I was looking at this black hole, this story of <clears throat> how over a four-year period, they took a picture of a black hole, which like, is amazing. They've never done it before, and until then, they never really had ultimate proof that black holes existed. And they had 20 years of preparation and they, they did this black hole. They took a picture of it. They made a telescope as big as the earth. They had radio telescopes all over the earth, all pointing at M82, I believe. Sagittarius A, I believe is what it is. The black hole, all pointing there. And they all took this information. They had five nights of it. And they spent the next two years processing it into a picture. It was really cool the way they did it. There's a, a program on net, Netflix. It should be a half hour program, but they drag it out to an hour and a half. A lot of that going around. Um, and it's just, just really cool to watch in this black hole. And then apparently in the last two years, they've even made a clearer picture of a black hole and you have to see it. It's really amazing. But then I flip over to Meerkat Manor and you're like, okay, <laughs> only God can do this. Black holes, 20,000 miles across, you know, hundreds of millions of light years away. So they tell me, and then there's this goofy looking little meerkat and all his little 27 meerkat friends. Just the, how vast God is. But even all these meerkats, that are the coolest little creatures when you look at them and study them, even the meerkats did not answer Adam's aloneness. And so he wanted somebody, God wanted somebody that corresponded to Adam that was like him, fully in the image of God and yet complimentary to him. I will make him a helper, an answer. But it's really clear that at the beginning that the role of Eve with relationship to Adam, it's neither patriarchal nor egalitarian, it's complementarian. It is a mutual relationship, but it is not a purely equal relationship. From the beginning, Eve is defined as helping Adam. When we look at the very formation of Eve, then he took one of Adam's ribs and from that rib he fashioned a woman to say again, the equality, someone corresponding to him in the image of God, 
and yet someone different from him, taken from him, and then brought to him. In all of this, there's the definition of love. This is the picture of Jesus and his church. Ephesians 5, of course, lays it all out. But there's still this derivation of Eve from Adam, and it's significant, and it aligns with her supportive role. God has established male headship and male leadership in the home, and this is not negotiable. The feminists don't get to dismantle it, but more importantly, my brothers, you don't get to abandon it. You see, this instruction isn't just so women know their place. That would be a really bad approach to this passage. This is so men know who they are, know how they should act, know what they should stand for. But you're not dealing with a meerkat that you can put away when you're done. You're dealing with someone who corresponds to you, so that can be a challenge at times. I wish I could just put a little wand over Gwen sometimes and go, meerkat. And then go back. <clears throat> Don't want to lose that one. And so here it is for men, you men. Here is the woman God has brought to you. She corresponds to you in every way. And yet she's different. And you're to take responsibility for this rib. And you cannot abdicate your leadership role. You cannot abandon your leadership role. You must take the responsibility in your family. And furthermore, in the world. And it's a man who leaves father and mother and establishes a new relationship of authority. A new core unit of home, human socialization. And again, to try to redefine or realign this core human relationship is a radical breach of God's design. It is either at the top or the bottom of the list, however you want to look at it, of rebellion against God. But Adam and Eve sinned. And in the expression of it, God is speaking directly to Adam because you've listened to the voice of your wife. You abandon your role as the male leader. You abandon your role of keeping the garden. You, took, you abandon your responsibility to make sure the affairs of the garden were managed well according to the will of God. Because you did this, and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Remember, the woman was judged in her primary role as a mother. And childbearing will now be a grief and a pain that it wasn't before. And here Adam is judged in his primary role of leadership, protection, and provision. It will now be hard. It will be toilsome. It will be mundane. It will be tough to get the response of the earth to give you what you need. It's going to be a hard life because of sin. It says the desire of the woman is going to be to her husband, back in the verse before, and he will rule over you. Challenges to manhood and fatherhood, and the first one is sin. Male and female roles will become plagued by sinful desires and expressions. That's why you shall have tribulation in the flesh, as Paul talks of marriage, because of sin. Women will express it in one way, and men will express it in the other. Women will express it in terms of manipulation and control and trying to dominate the man, and the men will, will express the response to that by dominating and controlling the woman with harshness and rigor. Maybe Paul was thinking of this in Colossians when he gives the simple statements. It's like two sentences to how to do your marriage. You don't need giant books, by the way. You don't need another seminar on marriage. I mean, maybe early on in life you do because you don't know anything, but as you've had experience in life, another seminar is going to help you. Doing what you already know is what's going to help you. But he says, fathers, don't provoke your children and don't be cross with your wives. 
because the tendency of manhood is to solve things with a nuclear weapon. To be harsh. To get to the boiling point and just go, okay, that settles it. Here's the law. Claire and Martin. I mean, that's just the tendency of manhood. Women tend to do what? Break down and cry. Because they know men have no defense against that. See, they know what they're doing. I mean, how can you get mean with, an, with a crying woman? I'm sure men can, but it makes it ten times harder. He will rule over you with harshness and rigor. Sin. Sin challenging manhood. And Jesus came to redeem us from sin, from all its expressions, all its consequences. And so, like women having to do this in their world, as men, we have to analyze what undermines our manhood. Manage it. Put to death sinful aspects of it. Cultivate the dimensions that are positive. And this is our entire success. We have to embrace our manhood and do not, in the world of the 21st century, let anybody, any movement, any political movement, any social movement, do not let anything or anybody move you from your God-given manhood. Don't do it. So there's sin, but again, there's Satan. Satan has gone after gender roles from the beginning. He will continually chip away at your manhood. He will continually oppose your manhood. He will continually d diminish your personal significance as a man. He's crafty, and he comes up with all kinds of distortions. And a sinful world goes along with it. They socially deconstruct God's version of manhood and replace it with a humanistic version. And it's called toxic masculinity. You all, if you're paying attention at all, you've heard this term. Toxic masculinity describes the negative aspects of an exaggerated masculine traits. Some things that they point out are true. Men should not be violent and things like that in, in, in many ways. But that's not an absolute. Pretty sure it's good for men to be violent when in a sinful world there's a war going on. But they take male traits such as strength and generally being more rational than emotional being self-sufficient, which we're supposed to be, not that we are not sufficient in God, but we're to stand on our own two feet and give leadership, not stand on our own two feet and, 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 and wring our fingers and wonder what to do. We are to have leadership, but they recast it as dominance. Toxic masculinity where they say men are responsible. Manhood is responsible for everything bad in the world. And I have a few quotes here just to sort of frame it. I'm sure many of you have encountered these and it's frustrating, but just to frame it. Universities across the nation, here's a quote from an internet article. Universities across the nation are taking steps to actively purge male students of what's been labeled toxic masculinity. There's an increasing push on the part of some to suggest that there is something fundamentally wrong with being a man in the traditional sense. University programs are being developed and aimed at stripping young men of the legacy of harm and oppression and dominance, quote, which is alleged to be inherent in being a masculine male. So male leadership isn't male leadership. Male leadership is being harmful and being oppressive and being dominating. Now there are people who are like that, but they take the negative expressions and say, well, that's masculinity. No, it's not. That truly is toxic masculinity. Just as well, much as there is toxic femininity. All right? Corresponding to him. Okay? But there is real femininity and there's real masculinity. And we don't throw away masculinity because there are bad expressions of it in the world. Another is written, there's a general belief among the members of the left that masculinity itself is toxic and must be quashed. But in their effort to eradicate the destructive male tendency, the left has pushed emasculation as the solution. 
While they champion the notion that women can do anything they set their minds to, they simultaneously castigate men as the barriers to progress and masculinity as a condition to be avoided. The goal of the left, therefore, becomes to train boys. You young men out there, you boys out there, they are out for you. You understand that? Your parents are shielding you right now, but they are out for you. They want you to embrace a distorted view of what it is to be a boy, a young man, a man. They want to distort manhood to you, and they want to deny you legitimate expressions of who you are as a man before the living God. The goal of the left, therefore, becomes to train boys not to become men. Instead, boys should be feminized, and they should never be encouraged to, quote, be a man. Remember that statement. Our society is unlearning masculinity. It's feminizing every stage of male life, and boys are paying a steep price. They're after you guys. Consider the feminization of the home occurring on two fronts simultaneously. First and most important is a disillusion of the family, which brings increased fatherlessness. For all of our culture's recognition of single moms, boys need dads. It's that simple. Men and women in general have different roles to play in their kids' lives, and a boy sees in a good dad the fruits of a properly channeled and properly lived masculinity. Probably talked about it before because it stuck with me, but many of you may remember that they did a study on elephants. Because in Africa, they were starting to have these raging, charging bull elephants. It was becoming an epidemic among the elephant herds, and they were trying to figure out why. Why did this sort of crop up all of a sudden? And they did a number of years of study, not they didn't study the meerkats for 10 years, but they studied elephants. And they found that here's what was happening with all the poaching going on. It was the male bull elephants that were being killed, and little young bull elephants were growing up without fathers. And even among elephants, if they don't have a legitimate male role model, they become toxic. What an amazing study. And what an awful result. But beyond fatherlessness is the increasing feminization even of the intact family through the use of models of domestic life intentionally crafted to break old stereotypes and cultural norms. That is, to... Re, <clears throat> redefine maleness and femaleness. Who's to say what's masculine in this model? Who's to say what's feminine? The one thing we do know, however, is that stereotypically male characteristics of aggression, risk-taking, and high-energy work and play are now considered toxic and therefore need to be remediated. This is going on across our society. And moms, you really need to understand this. Your tendency is to say, well, my son's too risky because you're not risky, right? Well, my son's being risky. And all of a sudden, the tendency is to do what? Not just go, okay, you know, we'll see how this turns out. But your tendency is to try to redefine your son into your female image. Single moms do the best they can, we hope, in most circumstances, but they can never replace a version of manhood that only a father can emulate and articulate. Can't be done. And a feminized society will interpret maleness and male characteristics into negativity and suppress true manhood and destroy the entire world in the process. The biggest problem in America isn't the feminist movement. It's the metrosexual movement. Effeminate men is the biggest problem the world faces. Adding to the feminized home is a feminized school, complete with a zero tolerance 
mortal fear of anything remotely martial, and its relentless emphasis on compassion and nurturing rather than exploration and adventure, unless, of course, the adventure is a woman. There are themes. We love the earth. We don't conquer it. Elementary school is a place of hugs, not conflict, a place to be peaceful above all else. That's a woman's world. I'm sure it is. But it's not a man's world. It's not a world men want or care about in one sense. We have bigger fish to fry. We've got to make the world work. So again, ladies, be careful of making your vantage point to be the measure of the world that God has created. Just like men have to do the same. No more reenacting the Battle of the Bulge. No more toy guns. No more drawings of tanks mowing through stick figure Nazi hordes. We must re-educate the toxic male. And in place of teaching men to channel their aggression and adventurous spirits in productive ways, we ask them to stifle their truest natures. In place of teaching them to protect others, we lie and declare all violence to be bad. Instead of telling the truth that men and women are different, we try to transform men into women. We elevate the stories of those who find traditional gender norms oppressive, like gay men and metrosexual, their metrosexual cousins, and we celebrate the demise of traditional masculinity. Is it not possible to preserve masculinity for the majority? Must we burn it all down? Well, that's what's going on today. So what's God's solution? God's solution is simple. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. Turn there. Turn there in whatever medium of the scriptures you have. This is a simple passage. Paul, just in, at the close of his letter, not the very end, but almost at the end, he does what he does every now and then. He's saying, okay, I've said these main things, but I don't want to forget these things. And he just sprinkles in sort of miscellaneous thoughts almost. They're not really miscellaneous to him. He has reasons, but they're just not part of the I don't know, flow of the bigger, bigger thoughts, perhaps. But they're just as powerful, sometimes even more. There are five brief imperatives. Seven words in the Greek in verse 13 and five words in the Greek in verse 14. Twelve words. They're all in the present tense. That is, you are to continue to be and to do these things. Five simple statements. The first one is be on your guard. Here is manhood. And the reason I'm saying that there's manhood is not because it shouldn't be something everybody does. It's kind of like an elder. An elder has to have all these qualifications to be qualified to be an elder. Now, these qualifications that an elder has to have, everybody else should have, but he has to have. And so when we come to these things, these qualifications of manhood really apply in general to everybody, but men, to be men, must have these qualifications. This is on men more than women to exhibit these characteristics. The first is to be on your guard. It's drawn from a common circumstance in the first century, or read the Psalms, or read the Old Testament histories. They had guards that would be posted in cities, especially at night, because there were enemies, real enemies. There were other dangers. There were other threats. There could be fires. There could be robberies. There could be lots of things. And a guard was to be there watching over everything. They didn't have electronic systems to monitor. And so a person who was supposed to be a guard needed to be awake and to be vigilant, vigilant and to be alert. Be on your guard. It's one word in the Greek, by the way. Simply means be watchful. And Proverbs be, brings these qualities of being awake and being vigilant and looking around you and paying attention, brings them down to the personal level where to be watchful and wise and circumspect we're to have discretion, we're to be prudent. Always looking around, always paying attention to your circumstances. And again, you boys, you young men, as you're growing up, what are you supposed to be doing? Are you supposed to be filling your life with the best time you can have, your best life now? Unfortunately, that's what parents in this generation think. I'm going to have my kids have their best life now in their youth instead of learning to be these things. 
It's okay to have fun, but you're to have fun on this foundation of growing up to be an adult. You will be what you are becoming. You are not going to go in this direction of just having a great life and being irresponsible and one day show up to get married as a responsible person. It just doesn't happen that way. You, as young men, as boys, are to be developing character in your life. That's your responsibility. Your fathers are there to help you with it. Be on your guard. Now, Paul had already listed a number of challenges that the folks at Corinth faced, the Christians there faced. Chapter 1 through 4, there were celebrity preachers. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 is immorality and how to deal with it and how to not have it. Chapter 8, this liberty, and by the way, that's not that we're supposed to have liberty, but we're not supposed to abuse our liberty and cause others to stumble. That's the emphasis of Corinthians. In chapter 9, 10, again, dealing with celebrity preachers and idolatry, those on the one hand who would say, okay, I'm going to take liberty from others, and those on the other hand who took liberty too far. Chapter 11 is feminism. There were feministic, feministic movements in the Roman Empire. It's not isolated to America or to the 20th and 21st century. Chapter 12 through 14, the gifts of the Spirit and the emotionalism that drove it instead of the spiritual sober-mindedness that should inform it. Chapter 15, false teaching on the resurrection and the second coming. If you look up just a few verses in verse 16, 9 there in your chapter, Paul says, I'm going to stay at Ephesus because there are many adversaries. We're to be on our guard because there is opposition to you as a person, to you as a man, to you in terms of having a functional social order, to you as a believer in Christ, especially. There will be unbelievers who oppose God and there will be false teachers who distort the gospel. Be on your guard. As men, we are to be sober-minded, discerning, knowledgeable. These things are stated everywhere in the New Testament. The necessary components of good leadership in a crazy and spiritual, spiritually hostile world. To be wise, to be watchful, to be stable, to not be naive, to not be careless, to not be indifferent, to not be gullible, to not be selfish. These are the ingredients of manhood, and these are the things that distort manhood. And as men, we should always be cultivating, being on our God, being watchful, being stable, being sober-minded. Another solution to the dilemma of distorted manhood is to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm means to hold your ground in the face of all opposition and challenge. I may be dating myself, but there was an old John Wayne movie, a famous one. I don't know if I ever watched it, but I just remember the name. True Grit. As men, you got to have grit. Grit. Now, to stand firm in the faith, that faith could mean personal subjective faith in the Lord, and those are, there are places for that in the New Testament. But Paul doesn't say stand firm in faith, it says stand firm in the faith. He's pointing to something that's objective, the objective truth of the gospel. And there are a number of places where we're told in almost these identical terms, stand firm in the faith. Hold on to the gospel, hold on to the truth. When someone comes to oppose it and push you back as the world is doing right now, it used to be Christianity was here and the world was out doing its thing, at least as far as America is concerned. But now, no, the world has come to invade and dismantle Christianity, and we have to stand firm in the faith. In a world of an internet, false teachers are everywhere. All they got to do is put up a little camera in their office and they can spew out anything they want without any sense of accountability or responsibility. We're to stand firm in the faith when there's just swirling false teaching everywhere. As men, 
manhood. We're to be unwavering. We're to be decisive. We're to be, be clear. We're to have conviction. We're to be tenacious when it comes to the truth of the gospel. As one fellow illustrated, you can have wood that's a dead post pounded into the ground, easily pulled up. Or you can have a tree that has roots deeply entwined in the earth, and it'll take some big machine to rip it out. Where to be that tree? Roots in the gospel. And then sort of the middle of the passage itself, which defines the passage, act like men. Boys, you're supposed to be growing up into men. Young men, you're supposed to be growing up into mature men. Mature men, you're supposed to be growing up into old men. At least that's how it's going to work. But every step of the way is more maturity, more stability, more experience, more manhood. The Greek word behind this phrase, act like men, is, is only one word. And it takes the, the noun man and it says, basically, man up. Turns it into a verb, be manly. This is what we're supposed to be. We are told as men to be men. It's not negotiable again. And it's interesting, this word is only found here in the New Testament. It's only found once in the New Testament, but it's found in a number of places in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you were to read the Greek of the Old Testament, you would find this word, man up, this identical word, in a number of places. The first sort of place, and it's, it's sort of a clump of them, is in Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is giving an encouragement and an exhortation to all the Israelites as they are on the plain there about to enter into the land of Canaan. In verse 6, be strong and of good courage. That word good courage here in my ASV, that's man up. Be strong and man up. The identical Greek word. Fear not, nor be affrighted at them, for the Lord your God, he it is that goes with you. Verse 7, and Moses called unto Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and be of good courage. Man up. The identical Greek word. You hop over to verse 23. And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge and said, be strong and be of good courage. You're a leader. Man up. In the face of all the opposition you're going to experience with all of the Canaanites, because they were a tough bunch. And remember, the nation of Israel was alone in the world. There were world empires starting to swirl all around them, and they're this little group. Alone. Man up. That is what we are as Christians. We are a little subset of people in the human race who walk with God and follow God and, and present God to the world. And my brothers, we need to man up. Be men. You can read this again in Joshua, and everybody's probably thinking there. In verse 6, 7, 9, and 18, we hear this identical language. Be strong and man up. Be of good courage. Psalm 27, 14 is an interesting place because in Psalm 27, 14, the psalmist in the Greek, we read these words here. The psalmist at the end of his psalm says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yea, wait for the Lord. We're to wait for the Lord. We're to depend on God. We're to be strong. The identical word that's used next by Paul in our passage. And take courage, the identical word that Paul uses, act like men. We find the same thing in Psalm 31.25. Here is Paul at the end of Corinthians taking all that terminology and bringing it into the New Testament saying, men, here's two words for you. Man up, be strong. Do this. Be brave, be fearless, be valiant. Be courageous, be undeterred by danger and pain or sacrifice. And what is really interesting is there is no word in the Greek language of woman up. You never hear that. 
It's man up. Because it's on men to be strong and to be leaders and to be brave and be courageous. Women should be that too, but it's imperative for men. And we're to be strong, it's not merely that which strength which we possess, but it's strength in action. The, the word is a, an active word, not a passive word. Not be strong and sit around and be strong. But it's go out and do something with that strength. Strength in action, strength applied. Be successful. Be, as it were, in the Lord invincible. Do not be weak or timid or withdrawn. 2 Timothy Verse 1, or chapter 1, I'm sorry, verse 1. And just, just go there for a minute, because this is something where Timothy as a leader told some things where this, this is just epitomized by the Apostle Paul. Verse 7, for God, well, verse 6, for which cause I put you in remembrance, Timothy, that you stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Focus on God. Keep your focus there. Verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fearfulness, but of power and love and sobering. Verse 8, be not ashamed, therefore, of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner, but suffer hardship with the gospel according to the power of God. Be strong. Be spiritually strong. And finally, let all that you do be done in love. This is the wrapper around everything. This is why we're not talking about toxic Christian masculinity. The fail-safe to that is love, is to be around everything. This is a rapper. Any of you have watched the movie The Help? You remember Crisco? If you got this problem, apply Crisco. If you got this issue, use Crisco. And I, I was watching that movie, and I remember we used to have this can of Crisco in our house. I don't know if it's still around today. I haven't noticed it. But Crisco was a big deal. Crisco solves everything, and love is to be over everything. And just a final quote. There are a few sights more profoundly meaningful than watching a son grow up with a good father. To see him take on his dad's best characteristics while at the same time forging his own path. It is important to see and know that throughout the young man's life, his dad wasn't just nurturing him. He was also challenging him, pushing him to be stronger mentally, physically, and emotionally. To that end, it's time to remember that strength is a virtue. Rightly channeled aggression creates and preserves civilization itself. And there is nothing at all inherently toxic about masculinity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we just uh, thank you that your design is perfect and your design, when followed, works just fine. Lord, you know better than we do that we live in a day when in such a broken world people are rising up with their humanistic solutions and trying to redefine maleness and femaleness. Lord, you have called upon us to become true men and to become true women and to get back to your perfect design. Lord, we're sinners, and we're going to blow it. We're going to botch it at times. But Lord, if we have our trajectory right, then we will be well-pleasing to you. There's forgiveness for those times when we do blow it, when we do act improperly or speak improperly. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for that, where we have tarnished your design for us. Lord, we pray that you would establish in every woman's heart and every man's heart who we're supposed to be as male and female images of you. Lord Jesus, give us grace to be a blessing to all around us, to each other, to our families, to the world, even though the world will deny it. And Lord, as men, where the world is in, from every angle trying to push us off of our manhood, trying to dismantle our manhood, trying to say that just because we're men, we are somehow problematic. Lord, let us show by our actions, by our words, by our knowledge, by our truth, by our love, by our joy, by our confidence, that we are not ashamed to be what you've made us, and that Jesus has redeemed us and reformed our humanity so that we can be excellent representations of true manhood in everyday life. 
We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.